How do we build the next generation of leaders to study and to develop careers in agriculture in the future? Welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. Agriculture creates wealth. It creates food security. And it's at the smallest farming family level throughout the world, as well as in the larger spheres. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, and health about how they are tackling the big challenges in these areas. And in some episodes, like today's, we focus on members of the CSU community and their contributions to solving big global challenges. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, Assistant Vice Chancellor of the CSU Spur Campus, and I am joined today by Carrie wright Platice. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks, Jocelyn. So we are going to talk a little bit more about your career path a little later, but maybe you can tell us a little where you are coming from, um, how long you've been with CSU, and what your role is with us. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I am currently the Special Advisor to the Chancellor for International Agriculture at the Spur Campus. As of July 1st, I will also add on Director of International Agriculture at Spur. Um, I've been with CSU since 2018. And during that time, I've had a split appointment where I also was working, have been working with Alan Rudolph as vice president for research on campus at CSU Fort Collins. And that has been a wonderful opportunity to really blend research and uh, our aspirations for SPUR and to be able to know what's new and, and happening and interesting on the Fort Collins campus and how research will really impact uh, our next steps and what we'll be doing at SPUR. In your role, both the one that you've had and the one you're transitioning to here shortly, congratulations, by the way, <laughs> Thank you. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you do? Like, wh- what is it that, that you have been tasked with in this role? Sure. Well, you know, part of it, it's, it was a bit of a blank slate, which is super exciting and um, an exciting place to be. I came in from Washington, D.C., where I had been doing international development for 30 years uh, with the World Bank and a group called the CGIR, which is the Consultative Group for International Agriculture Research. So taking that information from the different research aspects and partnerships, collaborations that we had ongoing and folding that into what will we do at SPUR? How will we catalyze? How will we participate? How will we ignite an opportunity around conversation as well as engaging with collaborators and partners that are beyond our borders, both within the state, nationally and internationally? So we set to work really to understand a bit of a mapping exercise on what was taking place on campus so that we began to sort of build our baseline. And from that mapping exercise, we grew the Global Mapping and Strategic Outreach Project, which is a collaborative activity across all three campuses and which will produce the global map um, that we will feature at SPUR uh, when we open. So that became a really wonderful uh, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary team, uh, which has system leadership as well as leaders from Fort Collins campus, um, Pueblo and Global. So I can say a little bit more about that later. And then another part that we were talking about was, how, you know, what kind of platforms will we have? What activities do we want to bring in um, that really elevate our international agriculture conversation at SPUR, which is such a unique opportunity um, to have a campus that's actually focused on, you know, global food security? 
So through that, we also have engaged in several collaborations within the state, uh, nationally and internationally, and I can speak more to that also with a brand new collaboration that, that we are hosting at the CSU system called the North American Agricultural Advisory Network. That's great. Thanks, Carrie, for that overview. It seems to me that your work touches on a lot of different opportunities that both build on CSU's strength, the system's existing work around agriculture, but also brings in more of an international focus, but sort of synthesizes and crystallizes some of that international thinking. So taking a step back with that in mind, you know, as you were thinking about coming into a university environment and, and thinking about international agriculture, what was it that was most exciting for you about bringing that international focus to what we're already doing? Well, let's see, you know, starting on, on one level, um, CSU, I'm actually a double alum. So to come home to Colorado after 30 years was just incredibly special to be thinking about um, the impact. As you say, CSU has been engaged in international work and research for many years. And so being able to highlight that and really get to know the good research that's taking place, the excellent research actually. And I think COVID really in the last year put us in a place where we really were able to highlight the excellence of CSU's research activities. And that's been told in, in, in national stories and how we went in and found um, you know, specimen testing and how we kept our school open and kept people healthy and safe. And then there was also this amazing time of, of quiet, actually, on the international front because people weren't getting on planes and we weren't traveling all over for our different destinations. But through Zoom and through contacts and meetings and whatnot, we really actually moved the needle quite far in international discussions. And I think people were ready and also uh, willing and, and uniquely engaged in looking past COVID, what will we do next? What will we be thinking about and how will we make a difference? I think actually it gave us a chance to slow down, to look, to kind of test the waters and to think about the types of engagement we really want to create now. So Carrie, even though we've been working through a global pandemic, you've been able to start some new programs as part of the new position that you have here within CSU. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you've been working on recently? Well, I would have to say, you know, specifically um, with the formulation of the North American Agriculture Advisory Network, we are the newest network to join the Global Forum for Rural Advisory Services, um, which is an international NGO and has been in existence for 10 years. Um, we have joined as a partnership between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And our focus is really on, um, you know, sort of how do we connect and support uh, rural advisory services with sort of increased learning, knowledge sharing, and advocacy for agricultural extension programs. We, um, partly because of COVID and I think just the serendipitous opportunity for these three countries to come together, um, the non-secretariat hosted here at CSU System and at SPUR, we were able to really engage with very high-level um, leadership, uh, ministerial-level leadership across all three countries. So our current Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, serves as ex officio for the United States. He was also matched by uh, the Honorable Marie-Claude Bibeau who serves as ex officio for Canada. She's the Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food for Canada uh, with high-level leadership from Canada, as well as the current Secretary of Agriculture and Rural Development from Mexico, Secretary Victor Villalobos. 
and his team. So, you know, I think part of that, that dialogue and that conversation with high-level leadership and buy-in, our focus in the next few years will be on biodefense, biosecurity, uh, climate change with a special emphasis on water um, and soil health and management, and then on sort of how do we build the next generation of leaders uh, to study and to uh, develop careers in agriculture in the future and specifically in extension. And we've got some great partners, including Together We Grow and other um, networks within GFROS, which actually are another 15, 16 across the world. So we are the newest member to join and already to have an ongoing conversation that you can pick up with and be a part of and bring the United States and partners into is what we're really excited about. As you mentioned, the North American Ag Advisory Network sits within the Global Forum for Rural Advisory Services, or GFROS, which includes extension work around the world. Can you say more about what it means to have the NON, the North American Ag Advisory Network, joining this larger network that includes extension services around the world? What's so interesting about North America joining is um, in most of the places of the world, extension services and service to farmers and, and small family farming systems is not necessarily linked with the education system or linked into universities. That's very unique for the United States and part of the land grant university mission that we are a part of. And so, in fact, it doesn't even exist you know, across the board in North America, Canada has their own model and the way that they do things on a very provincial or state level is somewhat how their agriculture services are organized. In Mexico, it's through various ministries. So there'll be different ministries that hold responsibility for farmers and um, climate change and for economic growth and whatnot, all merging together in different ways. So we are actually building a brand new model of, you know, what does this look like? What do we contribute to the other networks under GFROS and what do we learn from them? And that information exchange is really going to be um, amazing. I think in the years ahead, we're starting with a baseline survey this summer where we will be in touch with many different institutions and leaders across the three countries to really learn more about their systems, develop a baseline, and then begin to understand how we can contribute, how we can build on what already exists. We're not working to reinvent the wheel, but we are working to sort of create some of that connective tissue across the three countries and what we can do effectively here in the United States to improve access to farmers and extension services, which is really doing quite well at the land-grant system and state level. But then how do we maybe enlarge the conversation? What do we learn from other farming um, institutions and opportunities throughout the world? It's really an, quite an honor to have the non-network be part of the CSU, be hosted by CSU, and to, to have a home at SPUR. Yeah, I am grateful to our chancellor because he has the big ideas that I um, enjoy when he says, throws out big ideas and says, let's go create something just like Spur. I mean, Spur and all the people and partners, yourself included, who have been a part of formulating this dream and creating this for so many years. For people like myself that have only really recently joined, um, it's exciting to step into something that is part of something bigger than who we are and to create that in a in under formulation of collaborations. Well, and you certainly have played a big role in in making it something bigger um, you know, thinking about uh, the Spur campus and these these concentric circles that we've talked about before around impact that that we hope to have. 
Um, so speaking of impact, as you what you just described as kind of what Nan is is hoping to do now, kind of get some baseline, understand the lay of the land. What do you hope the network can do in the next, say, one to two years? Well, let's see. I think we will be contributing to the conversation. I'm hoping through this baseline survey that we collect over the summer. Um, we are also writing chapters. So the experts within each of the three countries have formulated their own writing groups and we'll have a background chapter on sort of the history of extension, how it's come together, where it's going, and maybe some of the challenges it faces. So we'll be publishing a report by the end of the year. And um, the executive summary will come together, um, one of our opportunities to uh, engage and kind of to launch the non really will be at the World Food Prize, which takes place in Des Moines, Iowa in October. And that's sort of the Nobel Peace Prize of food pro production and productivity um, that was established in the time. It's in honor of Norman Borlaug, who's considered the founder of the Green Revolution. And so um, the Norman, the World Food Prize Foundation has put together this program and gives out uh, the award each year. And so we will be holding a secretary's uh, panel dialogue as part of the Norman Borlaug International Dialogue this year, where they will host our three secretaries and ministers. And some of the early findings from our survey will feed into their conversation and into their dialogue and discussion. And then we will also host a um, non-site event that afternoon in Des Moines. And we're thinking of focusing that on our third thematic area, which is engaging um, in career development and how to get the best and the brightest minds into agriculture in the future. I'd like to talk about extension because we've we've said a lot about the work you're doing being related to extension. And maybe we can just say, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with extension, the premise behind extension is to take best-in-class research outcomes and put it into the hands of practitioners. Traditionally, that's been pretty focused on agriculture, but extension plays a lot of roles now, including right. energy efficiency and a lot of other topics. Community development. Community development, exactly. Right. So um, so your work is is helping to understand what that model looks like in other places and to, to help us sort of work collaboratively across borders right. um, within that framework right. of... Well, the non itself will take a look at sort of the models that exist and then begin through the thematic areas of uh, biodefense and biosecurity. How do we respond to outbreaks and crises and disaster management? You know, where do we come together across borders as well as in our states? How are we responding to climate change? You know, what role is extension playing in water management and uh, soil health? And then also the third area of working on career development and, and engaging and, and training. You know, I think there's a lot of training that goes on through extension services. And I can't, I've been on the research side in my career and in sort of connecting ag policy to um, applications within research. And so the even engaging in the conversation for extension is new also mm -hmm. for me, but it's been fun to learn what's in place, um, who's doing what, and how can we create that dialogue or maybe help to improve the connectivity around it. So let's expand a little beyond the the non-conversation, mm -hmm. which of course is a really wonderful um, uh, part of the work that you are doing here. W what are you seeing in international ag right now? Yeah, no, it's, um, and again, COVID has played a role in all this. I mean, I think, um, you know, economic opportunity Agriculture creates wealth, it creates food security, 
And um, it's at the smallest, you know, farming family level throughout the world, as well as in the larger spheres, you know, of the sector of agriculture and education and research and whatnot. So, uh, you know, as what I've watched over the years and have been a part of in my earlier work at IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, um, we had a program on scientific and technical partnerships in Africa, which I led, and we looked at emerging technologies throughout the CGIAR system. What was like coming up and what was um, what should we be aware of and have on our radar and begin to invest in both public and private sector funding around and actually, one of those areas that we we researched and looked into um, years earlier was African swine fever and the work that's taking place at ILRI, which is the International Livestock Research Institute in Kenya. Um, it was interesting to have discussed African swine fever and then to have seen the outbreak that took place in 2019 and 2020, which was heavily hit in China. China is one of the largest pork producers in the world. And... Uh, the stats were pretty astounding in terms of um, ASF is not in our borders. It's not in the United States, but it's something we never want to have here. And so how do you prevent? How do you have early detection? You know, where do we come together around that? At, at this point in time, 25% of the pig population has been impacted worldwide because of ASF. In 2019, 2020 alone, 6 million pigs were, you know, had lost, we were lost to that disease itself. So formulating that, knowing that that research was taking place in Kenya and being able to come to Colorado State and to learn about our work and our research. And so um, we had some of the researchers came before COVID and they were able to visit at our Foothills campus. And Ray Goodrich oversees this work um, at our Foothills campus in terms of putting them together with Edward Okoth, who leads the work in Kenya. And they now have an ongoing um, collaboration that we're working on finding a vaccine for African swine fever. And it's something where no vaccine actually exists yet. And yet there have been outbreaks of, you know, different varieties in Europe, um, in Russia, in a big outbreak in China. So this is an opportunity where research at Colorado State actually is being in intertwined and connected to international research to, to make an impact and a difference. So I would say that's one opportunity. One Health is another growing area of concern and something that SPUR will tackle and address. Um, so the health of animals, the health of humans, and where do we find that interconnectivity? How do we impact um, and, and are impacted by shared diseases or you know, viruses and problems? And we've just lived through that with COVID. So I think you know some of what's on the horizon has to do with access and scale, access to technology. I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, technologies in general, uh, when you speak of ag technologies are not neutral, right? Like you might, we might think they are, but when you even just look into say um, what would be considered more um, male oriented as a, a male access technology, say in developing countries or female gender specific um, in the case of bean production, so um, we worked on another project in Africa where traditionally beans are a, considered a woman's crop, and it's because they have control then of the money that comes from the beans. It's a high nutrition crop, so they'll be working, you know, to increase the nutrition of their family and their children. Um, whereas animal husbandry, for the most part, is is considered a male, you know, uh, in their domain, and so I think. 
it's important for us to think about when we research new areas or new problems, who has access to that new technology? Um, how will they get it? How will they learn about it? Which is actually part of where extension comes in. And um, how will we be able to share it, you know, across um, both across the world, really, with the world's small farmers. Yeah. And you hit on one of the the topics that I think you, you have woven some COVID impacts and some thoughts about COVID and, and how it has shaped your work into, into a lot of your uh, remarks. The other thing, of course, that's very much on our mind in this over this past year is equity and thinking about how we can continue to apply an equity lens to, to our work. And what you were just describing is maybe an aspect of equity that most people might not think about, which is what is still in various places around the world considered gender oriented when it comes to food production. No, oh, it is. It's fascinating. And I think we don't always think of it that way. And um, when you can kind of travel to the places and learn who has access to what technology, who um, has the opportunity to, to earn income because of it, and ultimately take care of their families and school their children and everything else. Yeah, so equity plays into so many different angles and aspects of agriculture productivity. Yes. I'd like to shift gears if we can and talk a little bit about um, your path to doing this work. <laughs> so as you know, at SPUR, one of the things that we are seeking to do is to um, showcase careers in food, in water, in health at the intersection of those disciplines and to help young people understand the pathway that might get them there and to see themselves in roles they have never considered before. So I could imagine that a visitor might say, international agriculture, I've never really thought about a career, but I love to travel or I'm really interested in international work. What was the path like for yeah. you to get where you are? Oh, that's fun. Um, very winding. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it went through lots of different stages and changes and opportunities. You know, I mean, when I think back in terms of how I... I I ended up studying both political science and social sciences and agriculture, agronomy, and crop sciences. And pulling those together um, didn't just happen. I think you have to follow um, and pay attention to sort of the magic moments in your life and the things that fuel your passion. And um, oftentimes it's serendipitous moments that are just created or that you are, wake up to and you're aware of, and then you follow that path. And in 1983, I actually left CSU for a semester to go work in Haiti. And I knew I wanted to work in international development on some level, but I had never gone to bed at night hungry, didn't really know what that was like, and felt like if I really wanted to dedicate you know, a good part of my career to food productivity and an understanding, and as well as ag policy, that I needed to experience it. And that was a, an amazing experience at 21 to be a part of that. And um, to come back and to really realize that agriculture on so many levels is like the, the fabric that weaves societies together. It, it, in the bigger scope, it, it helps us to, I mean, without agriculture, you can't even build a society for one thing and all the different cultures. And then by understanding equitable food production and how people have access to food and, and empowering their own lives and taking that on was a big part of, of my my path. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that um, working in international development has taught me quite a bit. Um, and then it's applications of what do we do with it? It's not just 
what happens over in Rwanda or in Kenya. It has to do with what we're doing here in the United States, our own research, our role, um, the access to food that we have, and then how do we translate that? But we're a much smaller globe than we really think about. We are so interconnected, and what happens in our own ag policy affects others' ag policies and um there's so many interconnectedness that we're seeing as a result of COVID, you know, with food productivity and access to food and migration issues. And some of that enters into climate change and how people can produce food in their own countries. So I think just looking at that bigger picture and having an opportunity to um, engage here in Colorado around it and to, to, you know, make sure we're a part of that conversation at SPUR and, and our, results and our research activities are playing into that global dialogue is really super exciting. So it inspired you at, at some point to really realize that agriculture was part of, of these two different worlds that you had been studying, at least mm-hmm. academically. And so where did you get your start? What was the, the first job? Well, let's see. Um, this is kind of a fun story. <laughs> so I was a waitress at Bennigan's okay. in Fort Collins. Yes. And Great. that's how all good stories start. <laughs> I've been to Bennigan's in Yes, Fort. yes. <laughs> and so graduate students walked in who had just received USAID money on tissue culture improvements, so drought tolerance and salt tolerance and whatnot. We had gotten a big grant, um, and I sat down with them after work and, and learned a little bit more about what their research was going to be focused on. And went in and actually spoke to the botany professor who had received the award and he hired me. And so I stayed with the tissue culture for crops project up on campus through my undergraduate work and went to Thailand um, to Chulalongkorn University as part of a research exchange on sort of a gap year working with them. And then I did my master's um, while I was working with this USAID project. And as a result of that, um, met some of the people from USAID who came and reviewed our project, our program, and then went to the World Bank when I finished my master's and started work with the CGIR. So, you know, a waitress at Bennigan's, you know, like that was a fun story because it all comes together. Right. You never know when that magic moment, which I think is what you called it, might happen someday when you are at work. Doing something how to listen and learn and also tapping into your passions and just saying, this is something I'm interested in. I also think the career pathway gives you an opportunity to um, put different tools in your toolbox, take time to maybe be trained in something new or be open to something different along your career path that eventually might take you in a new direction. But, you know, I think is an authentic way to sort of explore our career development over the years. Mm-hmm. Of the tools that are in your toolbox, to use your metaphor about your career path and and the the skills you've acquired, what do you think has been one of the more surprising surprisingly useful tools? Mm. Well, I took a couple years as a mediator and facilitator with the Meridian Institute several years back, maybe 10 or 12 years, and I think that was fascinating. It was a wonderful opportunity to just learn how to mediate, facilitate conversations. Um, They're experts at what they do, and they're a great group to work with. I knew I wanted to get back in more into research and research formulation, so I was only there for a few years. But I think in the long run, that was a a skill set that I really appreciate. And uh, being able to sort of set up um, a policy dialogue and to know Uh, the buy-in that's needed. You know, you don't just come from top down and say, we're going to do this in policy. It's very much bottom up and you need to have buy-in and different partners and collaborators and people come together and ownership is so important. 
and at learning that and working in the work I did in Africa for the 10 years before coming to CSU was a big part of it. There's listening and learning and understanding, you know, who has who has access, who has power, who has voice, and then how to bring that all together um, within the agricultural and food productivity context. So that's been a wonderful learning lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you're describing to me sounds like like combining the scientific background and understanding, you know, what is the latest and greatest, and this gets back to our conversation around extension as well, and then putting that information in front of the people who you know have the capacity and the and the authority to truly make change, and then facilitating that conversation so you really are making progress. I think you have to have both that the data, yep. but also the people. Right. It sounds like you've really woven those together. Oh, well, thank you. Well, and I think finding partners is so important, people who share the vision. Because, you know, I can't over, you know, state enough. I just think vision is so important in the work that we do that, that you can see a light at the end of the tunnel or you can begin to understand what this research is going towards and what, who is it impacting and who has voice and conversation in that dialogue. And that's such an important part of, I think, what's coming out of what we're creating at SPUR and all the different components of people that are, are a part of that excellent um, chance and opportunity really to create something new, as well as how do we tap into ongoing dialogues and work that's taking place here in Colorado, nationally and internationally. How do you participate in something larger than yourself? And how do you help create that opportunity for others to come into the conversation? And it really is an exciting part of what we do. So speaking of what we do, <laughs> more specifically what you do, can you uh, introduce a little uh, us a little to what is a day in the life or oh. a week in the life? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit split between probably two projects right now that we're working on um, to help develop our international scope. And I'm sure it's going to take on several others as, as we get going. So the non's been a big focus over the, the last several year, I guess, or so. And then um, the GMSO, so the Global Mapping and Strategic Outreach Project, is this wonderful compilation of people um, and leadership through the CSU system, CSU Fort Collins, Pueblo, and Global. And uh, we've really designed um, what we're calling the global map that will sit at SPUR and in our Terra building. And we're working to tell the stories of sort of CSU innovation and research and how it's impacting the world. Um, the map demonstrates how research at CSU is relational, it's intergenerational, and it's transdisciplinary. We'll tell the different stories um, in a variety of different interests and experiences. And as you mentioned, Jocelyn, career pathways. So when people come to Spur and want to think about what would they maybe like to explore, do, or even just learn about, we hope that the global map will be one more fun exhibit to um, interact with and to learn about. And just as an example, um, some of the stories that we're creating and we'll have on the map, um, Brian Wilson, who works in sustainable energy and harnessing clean and affordable power to remote villages in Rwanda. Elizabeth Ryan is a toxicologist and oncologist studies one in um, one of the world's most abundant foods in rice and how the bran of rice has the potential to dramatically improve gut health and reduce diseases. Yeah, I mean, it's just little stories. Diana Wall, who is quite famous from CSU and has had her work over the years, which unveils a secret life of soil and microscopic life in Antarctica and her work there. 
Um, a woman, Lumina Albert, in other corners of the world has joined a global effort to combat human trafficking. And this is all research that's taking place through CSU and, and just our being able to tell the stories and to elevate the opportunities of what people can engage in and research in in the different areas. When I first started university, I didn't even know agronomy was an area to study. So I think that you know, being exposed to things and just learning. And even if you don't see yourself in that particular area, what would you want to combine and put together in your studies, in your course of studies to actually learn something new or develop into? And interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary um, approaches to education is so much more easily accessible now and something that we really foster at CSU um, over the years and since I was a student. So it's been fun and to explore that. So I think, you know, that's kind of my interaction and, and collaboration with folks is a little bit of my day in the life. Um, I could go on. I mean, one of our opportunities and what I love is um, kind of researching different areas of what where our impact has been um, internationally. And I shout out to Karen Nath, who leads our communications thematic team um, for the GMSO, who put some notes together for me. And I just think this is fascinating. Um, our role, CSU, in the formulation of the Peace Corps in the 1960s will be another story that we'll feature maybe as a panel or it will be in the global map. But, um, you know, the opportunity that came from that where a study actually conducted by CSU faculty who believed research and education as tools for building a better and more just world was important that translated into the early formulation of the Peace Corps. Um, it, the idea was actually initially called Point Four Youth Corps Study. Initially, it was um, CSU researchers Pauline Berkey Kreutzer, Andrew Rice, who later became a professor at American University, and Maury Albertson, who conducted the study. Um, by 1960, it was in a campaign speech that President Kennedy gave at the University of Mich Michigan. And then later, it was actually dubbed the Peace Corps. So, yeah, so like a study out of our work became what formulated the beginning of the Peace Corps. And we'll have that story as part of our the global map. Um, and I love this quote from Maury Albertson that Kara shared. She said, um, we serve best by finding out what people want and helping them work to realize their dreams. And that's from, oh. from Professor Albertson. Yeah, yeah. That, that is an in inspiring and um, it's, a, it's comprehensive, that quote, right? And it really encapsulates a lot of what, what the land-grant university is all about. Absolutely. And just to know that we had a role, it's interesting right now, apparently, I mean, 100,000 Americans have served in 44 countries as part of the program in its first 25 years. And Fort Collins actually ranks third nationally, only behind Charlottesville, Virginia, and Missoula, Montana, in per capita Peace Corps volunteers. Oh, wow. I, I wonder how much of that is actually connected to people knowing this history, because I think it's not well known. Yeah. So it may just be that Fort Collins is a very civic-minded place. Yes, yeah. very top-ranking. Top so, I mean, that's just fun to be a part of all of that history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, we only have a few minutes left, so I will um, just ask, is there anywhere that you would point people for more information about your various projects you are working on? Well, you know, the non, uh, our website is, it will be part of the SPUR family, so we actually are on the SPUR website now. It'll be developed much more uh, thoroughly in the next few months, so it's, it's kind of a framework right now. Wonderful. 
So um, the last thing that we will do is what we call the spur of the moment question. So you have not been prepared for this. Okay. I promise it's not a scary question. So, um, I, and sometimes I have been asking uh, guests the same question. So I have, I also have asked another guest this question. So maybe we can compare notes. But um, so I won't ask you if you only had one album to choose because it's too hard. But do you have a couple of favorite go-to albums that you like to listen to? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. And um, my genre is very much back in the 70s and, and 80s, probably in terms of that formative period that you love music and you embrace it. So um, um, after the gold rush, Neil Young, huge um, place in my life. Bonnie Raitt, anything with Bonnie Raitt um, and Jackson Brown. Um, those are probably my go-to artists and, and their albums. Um, you know, the ones that you still go back to and want to listen to time and time again, uh, even on Spotify now that that's how we do this. That is how we do it. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and David Gray, I'd have to say as I enter into um, more, yeah, well, he's actually from, the, I suppose, the 2000s also. But, um, yeah, David Gray, White Ladder, mm -hmm. major um, piece that I love. Well, that is a great place for us to leave this. It was fun. Thank you, Jocelyn. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for being here. Again, my guest today has been Carrie wright Platice with the CSU System Office. Thank you so much for being with us, Carrie. And we will look forward to you all joining us for the next episode of Spur of the Moment. Thank you. The Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Peach Islander Productions, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned during today's episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next Spur of the Moment episode. Until then, be well.